Hi, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number 25. My name is Kieran, and believe it or not, I have been detecting for nearly 30 years. This week I continue my coin series with the coins of the United States of America. We have our regular tech time out where this week I chat about macro photography or close-up photography. And of course, some updates from my adventures in metal detecting. So let's get on with the show. Hey all, before I start, I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoy the show this week. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show at any time, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. No update this week in my adventures in metal detecting as I spent the week beginning my journey to refit out my garden shed to make it more podcast and detector friendly. You know, things like a bar and a television, all very necessary in the mudlark garden bar and restaurant. Yeah, we will serve food in the form of peanuts and chips. Woohoo! <laughs> also, as next week is the six month anniversary of the show, it would be great if everyone would send questions for me to answer. It doesn't have to be about metal detecting, but anything, I'll do my best to answer honestly. I've included a SpeakPipe link in my show notes to make it easier for you. So let's get started. As I said last week, I want to take you through the coins of the United States of America this week. So to start, the coins of the United States of America started as we discussed last week with the colonial coins of Britain and Portugal, but it was the Spanish pieces of eight. Pieces of eight? That were the coin of the masses at the time. Before they were united, the states or colonies of America issued their own versions of paper money whose denomination was pounds, shilling and pence. But as you can imagine, a pound in Massachusetts did not equal a pound in Pennsylvania. This issuing of paper monies and squabbling over its value continued till the Coinage Act of 1792 post the American Revolution, where the coins that we know today were implemented. Coins such as the half cent and cent issued in copper, the half dime or five cents, dime or ten cents, quarter or twenty-five cents, and dollar a hundred cents that were issued in silver, and a quarter eagle which was two and a half dollars, a half eagle five dollars, and eagle ten dollars, all issued in gold. Interesting point is that the half dime was the first coin to be minted in the United States of America, and it is said to have been minted from Martha Washington's silverware. Imagine finding one of those. These coins had a draped bust of Lady Liberty on the obverse, but on the reverse they had three different designs, one with the denomination encircled with the United States of America, one with a small bald eagle, and one with the heraldic eagle that we have all come to recognise today. These designs remained in effect till the 1830s, when the seated series of coins were issued, and I have to admit, up to my research for this episode, I thought a seated cent or penny was a type of seated alloy or copper, which makes no actual sense. So, for the record, the seated refers to the portrait of Lady Liberty who was seated. In this seated period of the 1830s to the 1890s, further additions were made to the series, such as the two-cent coin, which was the first coin to depict In God We Trust, the $20 golden eagle, which had nearly a full ounce of gold and was introduced to cater for the sudden influx of gold from the gold rush, 
but more notably the nickel or the five cent coin was introduced in 1866 made up of 75% copper and 25% nickel but whose issuance understandably resulted in the demise of the half dime coin. Also during this period the price of copper increased resulting in the need for the one large cent coin to be reduced to the flying eagle cent made up of an alloy of 88% copper and 12% nickel which soon changed again to the famous Indian hint cent. Made from the same alloy but by 1864 the civil war increased nickel and copper prices and the Indian head scent was made thinner and the nickel was removed. The scent was now a small tin bronze coin. Other additions were made such as the silver 3 cent coin or a trime, the 20 cent coin and the 3 dollar coin. I'd love to know where the love for the tree came from in those years. The year 1892 saw the designs of Charles E. Barber adorn the dime quarter and half dollar. His Liberty Head Nickel had debuted in 1883 and thus from the years 1892 to 1904 his designs were featured on every denomination from 5 cents up to 1 dollar. The Barber design would last on dimes and quarters up to 1916, on half dollars up to 1915 and on the nickel up to the extremely rare and famous 1930 Liberty Head Nickels. Federal Reserve notes were issued for the first time in 1917. Originally these were backed by gold and a note could be at least in theory exchanged for a gold coin at the bank until 1933 when gold was confiscated from the general public. Silver certificates were exchangeable for silver coins up to June 1968. But these Federal Reserve notes signaled the end of precious metals being used in the coins of the United States of America and became a reality with the Executive Order 6102 of 1933 resulting in no more silver or gold coins to be minted on denominations over 50 cents. However, up to 1964, dimes, quarters and half dollars were still minted in 90% silver. Half dollars would contain 40% silver from 1965 to 1970. And from then the coins of the United States of America no longer contained any precious metals. However, as the cost per pound of copper and zinc has increased over the years, it is now feasible for the humble one cent coin to be worth more than the one cent in raw material. But extracting that would be of questionable legality. I know many of my American listeners like to coin roll looking for pre-1965 coins and I would love to hear about your experiences here as we don't have this opportunity in Europe as all coin denominations were discontinued with the advent of the euro. Up next is this week's Tech Timeout where I talk about how to take a photo of your find. Time for this week's Tech Timeout. This week, I want to talk about macro photography. Why, Kieran? I hear you say it. Well, let's just say a lot of my recent online discussions started with me requesting clearer pictures, particularly in requests to help identify finds. All too often do you see blurred photographs of coins put online with requests to help identify the brown blob on the screen. It is very clear to me that the metal detecting community could do with a refresher or a how-to on how to photograph their finds. So firstly, although your screen may be 4K, allowing you to see the nose hair on a Vienna bell ringer at 100 feet, most websites render pictures at 72 dots per inch, which means for your 300 dot per inch picture that it may not be resolved, as in not legible if the raw picture is in any way blurred. 
So the goal with any close-up photography is to ensure sharpness in a close-up photograph of your subject. This is what the art of macro photography is all about. How do you take a great macro photograph of your find? I will discuss it briefly covering two methods. Method one with an actual camera and method two with the more likely of the two, a mobile phone. However, the principle is the same with both. Firstly, ensure the object is in focus, lit well, but not overlit, and not by a single point source such as your flash so as to create shadows, but a diffused light source. Utilizing overcast daylight on a cloudy day is perfect. As your flash is not suitable, you will need to turn it off on your camera. Your camera will compensate by leaving the exposure a little longer, and because of this, you need to minimize movement also. So method one, using a digital camera. What do you need for this method? Well, obviously a digital camera, but also a tripod and a light source as discussed. And lastly, but not always necessary, a cable shutter button pressy thingy thing. Firstly, set up your camera to take macro photography. This mode is normally indicated by the flower in your mode settings. You will also need to set the timer to 10 seconds at this time, but also remember to turn off the flash. Put the camera on a tripod or table surface ensuring a stable platform, but a tripod is best. Ensuring the camera won't move, you then need to frame the subject such as a coin and ensure you have a clear focus on the object. Most cameras in macro mode have a very tight focal point, so you will manually need to set the focus ensuring the full object is in focus. Once in frame and in focus, you will then click to take the picture and as you have set the timer previously, the camera will have plenty of time to recover from the resulting movement of your button press. This can also be helped if you have one of those remote cable pushy thingy things that allows you to remotely click the shutter button. And that's how simple it is with a digital camera, but how do you do this with a mobile phone? Well, it is almost the same process, for example, you can set the timer on your mobile phone to take a picture, just like a digital camera. You can get a tripod for your phone, but I have actually had great success taking a large lump of blue tack. Don't know what they call it in the USA. Maybe freedom tack. Maybe poster putty or mounting putty, which sounds very agricultural. But use some putty to hold your phone still. Even your subject will benefit from some. This will minimize any movement. Again, use a diffused light source. Frame your subject, you may need to tap the screen to ensure good focus, but you will also have the luxury of zooming in, which is not ideal, but may be enough to get a photograph of all the detail in a coin. If the patina is extreme, you may need to adjust the subject's angle to the camera to ensure full detail capture, but this can be accomplished with trial and error on the day. As you have set the timer, all that is left for you is to press the shutter button on the screen, allowing enough time for the phone to stop vibrating. You should have a great zero blur close-up photograph of your subject. Of course, there are loads of accessories to help. There are macro lenses that you can get for both your digital camera and phone, which will shorten the focal length to a point that you're right up on the subject while maintaining focus, tripods for both and light sources for both. But all that is needed is a little patience and an understanding of the environmental factors that affect the sharpness of a macro photograph and you're good to go. Okay, I hope you liked this episode of the Metal Detecting Show. Don't forget to send me some questions for the 26th episode next week. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any podcast directory of your choice. 
Check out our website, www.themetaldetectingshow.com for this episode show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. The link is in the show notes. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there, eyes down and happy hunting. Happy hunting.